If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, here we go. Yet another episode of Hollywood and Levine. Thank you so much for being here. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And this week I want to talk about cartooning. Because I have uh, on and off been a cartoonist really my whole life. And so I want to talk about uh, that aspect of my life and now career. And you're probably saying, wait, cartooning, that's visual. How are we going to enjoy something about cartooning if we can't see it? Well, if you go to my uh, Facebook page, you go to Twitter uh, or even the blog, uh, you will see an example of one of my cartoons. You also may be asking, well, if this is a lifelong hobby, then why are you talking about this now? Well, there is a point that I'm going to make uh, and you got to get to the conclusion to find out what that is. Okay, so cartooning. I began this when I was four years old. Uh, I was drawing Woody Woodpecker. Now, they weren't really good drawings of Woody Woodpecker. You know, my parents were not going, oh, my God, we have a prodigy here. It's like, no, it's... It, it, looked more like Woody Woodpecker than anything else. It was the impressionist version of Woody Woodpecker. By five, I kind of honed it down and I could draw Popeye, Popeye the Sailor Man. And I got pretty good at drawing Popeye the Sailor Man. And when I was in kindergarten, kids would ask me if I would draw Popeye for them. And and I started a business, actually, where I charged kids five cents to draw them Popeye. In addition to loving cartoons, I also love money. And, uh, you know, I made some some good pocket change. But at five years old, I'm already monetizing my hobby. Well, growing up as a kid, I loved cartoons and I loved comic books. And my favorite cartoons were Popeye, but the early Max Fleischer black and white Popeye. Loved Warner Brothers Looney Tunes. I also loved the serialized comic adventures, which started in the early 50s with Crusader Rabbit. Yeah, I know I'm dating myself. 
uh, started with Crusader Rabbit, and then in the late 50s, Rocky and Bullwinkle. And Jay Ward, who was the creator of Rocky and Bullwinkle, actually had been part of the creative team of Crusader Rabbit. He just kind of refined it. But I love the idea of these comic adventures and that they were serialized and broken up into uh, episodes. And each episode had a title, and the titles were usually puns. I remember one Crusader Rabbit one uh, was uh, I Could Row a Boat, Canoe. Now, you know, when you're six years old, you find that absolutely hilarious, which I did. Uh, I loved any cartoon that was subversive. And that's why, oddly enough, the the cartoons that I didn't respond that well to were the Walt Disney cartoons. I mean, the animated features, yes, those were brilliant. But the uh, Mickey Mouse cartoons and the Donald Duck cartoons, um, for the most part, just seemed kind of, I don't know, polished, overly polished. Um, the characters weren't particularly mean enough to each other, because I know Chip and Dale were pretty hard on old Donald. But uh, it just didn't have the flair that the Warner Brothers cartoons had. So those were cartoons. Um, and then there are comic books. And I loved comic books, all kinds of comic books, um, especially Superman and Batman. And I fell in love with great artists like Jack Kirby. You know, interesting about uh, Superman comic books um, in the back of the Superman comic books, there was always an ad for Palisades Park Amusement Park. And there was always a coupon that you could get $5 off of admission. And it talked about all the great rides and great things going on at Palisades Park. And I'm shaking my head because I'm living in Los Angeles at the time. And I'm going, where the hell is Palisades Park? I want to go to this. I mean, I got all these coupons every week. I could probably go free for 15 years. But where is Palisades Park? I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah, it's it's in New Jersey. And if I lived in the uh, New York metro area, then it would make more sense. But every week used to drive me nuts. Like, where is Palisades Park? Crazy. Um so I loved those, the DC comics. Not so much Marvel. I guess the Marvel kind of came along after for me. But uh, Superman and Batman were, uh, you know, were, were my kings in that regard. And I also liked the, the more cartoony uh, comic books, the Hasbro comic books, even though the stories were kind of stupid, uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost, that sort of thing. But... Um, the backgrounds were always really cool. And uh, as someone who used to like to draw, I found the trees and the backgrounds in those Hasbro comic books were always really cool. So I would get them as well. 
And then there were comic strips. I mean, back then, newspapers were still big. God, I feel like I'm 211 years old here. But uh, in Los Angeles, we had two major newspapers. We had the uh, Herald Examiner and we had the Los Angeles Times. And each had different comics. And I would try to get both papers because I loved all of the different comics. Um, And I liked the drawings. I think they were funny. I can't recall ever laughing out loud, ever going, oh, man, today's Blondie was just a riot. It's like, no. But I used to love Blondie by Chick Young and uh, Beetle Bailey by Mort Walker and High and Lois. I really liked High and Lois. High and Lois was created by uh, Mort Walker and it was drawn by Dick Brown. And here is a little-known fact for you comic book aficionados. High and Lois was actually a spinoff of Beetle Bailey because Lois was supposed to be Beetle Bailey's sister. Wow. The things you learn on podcasts. But um, I used to like that. Um, I used to love Peanuts, Charles Schultz. Uh, Pogo, Walt Kelly. And then there were all of these sort of holdover comic strips from like the 30s and 40s with Jiggs and Maggie and Barney Google and Snuffy Smith and a lot of these old comics that that just kind of reminded me of, of different times. But I would study and redraw a lot of the characters and a lot of the backgrounds from the various comic strips. I also fell in love with Mad Magazine and started paying attention to the cartoonists. My all-time favorite, Mort Drucker. Mort Drucker, who recently passed away, was well into his 90s and apparently was drawing until the last. But This guy was amazing. His caricatures were dead on. And I'm going to talk in a few minutes about uh, my all-time favorite caricaturist, Al Hirschfeld. Al Hirschfeld would do these dead right-on caricatures, but he would only have to do one. And Mort Drucker would be drawing all of the panels for, say, a parody of Star Trek. And he would have to do caricatures of all of those characters, panel after panel after panel, in different poses, uh, looking different ways. And he was just amazing at it. So I used to love uh, him, or Drucker. And uh, my second favorite was Jack Davis. Jack Davis had just a great style, also very good at capturing likenesses, but um, he had this this very uh, free form. The characters just jumped off the page. He did quite a few 
uh, movie posters. I mean, if there was something like Mad Mad World where there were like a lot of characters doing crazy things, you could almost count on there being a Jack Davis uh, cartoon for that because uh, he was he was truly amazing. Wallace Wood was another one of my favorites, but I love them all. I don't think they all made a lot of money. Uh, Mort Drucker used to moonlight drawing Bob Hope comic books. So you figure you're not going to get rich drawing Mad Magazine. But uh, boy, was he brilliant. So now I'm about 11 or 12, and I started drawing comic books. But I thought, oh, God, who's going to sit down and read my comic books? You know, I'm basically doing them just for myself. So that's what I would do. I would uh, turn on the radio and I would listen to the hits of the day on KFWB Channel 98 and uh, amuse myself on a rainy Saturday afternoon by drawing comic books. And my comic books were more in the style of Rocky and Bullwinkle and crazy adventures with a lot of humor in it. Uh, humor was was big for me. Um, I never really tried to do Superman or Batman comics because I liked them and I liked the adventures, but I was more of a comedy guy, even back then, I guess. So I used to draw these comic books that went absolutely nowhere. When I was 13, I saw in a magazine there was an ad campaign for the new fall season of CBS. And Al Hirschfeld had done caricatures of all of the CBS stars night after night after night. And I was completely blown away. So who is Al Hirschfeld? Al Hirschfeld drew caricatures for the New York Times for, let's see, 70 years, maybe? Seriously, that long? Uh, If there was a review of a Broadway play or a musical, it was accompanied by this big caricature. It was all, you know, line drawings done in pen and ink by Al Hirschfeld. And they were brilliant absolutely brilliant and uh i was so taken by not only how precise the caricatures were but how minimal the drawings were it was just you know like i said pen and ink but very sparing lines would move around and uh, the arm would become, the hand would become, the body. Really, really amazing. And uh, if you ever saw the Disney movie Aladdin, in a way they kind of patterned the caricatures and the characters of that movie after Al Hirschfeld, especially the genie played by Robin Williams. Like I said, for, uh, God, 50, 70 years, Al Hirschfeld almost lived to 100 and was drawing on the final day of his life. 
One thing about Al Hirschfeld drawings, like I said, they're all just line drawings. Rarely would he do any kind of real shading. But when his daughter Nina was born in the 40s, he decided to honor her one week by putting in her name. And he basically just hid the name within the drawing. It's kind of a fun thing so that you could look at the drawing and try to spot the Nina. Well, this kind of caught on and it became a regular thing. And if you see an Al Hirschfeld drawing, you will find at least one Nina. And oftentimes he would draw more than one. And they would be like in the sleeves or in a character's hair. He found very creative ways of working it into the folds of dinner jackets. And um, it got to be so popular that people wanted to know, okay, how many Ninas are in a drawing? So probably starting in the 60s, I want to say he would number the number of Ninas. So when he would sign a drawing, it would be Hirschfeld four. And you knew that there were four Ninas in that particular drawing. Go online, look up Al Hirschfeld, go to images. You'll see tons and tons of Hirschfeld cartoons and go through them and find the Ninas. It's a lovely way to pass the time. But he was my idol. And from then on, I set about collecting uh, his caricatures. Anytime I saw an ad or anything in the paper, uh, I would save it. And then when I was 16 for my 16th birthday, my parents found a book of Hirschfeld's Broadway. And it was all of the Broadway uh, caricatures for 30, 40 years. And that book absolutely became my Bible. I also learned a lot about the Broadway stage from that, you know, because you would read about uh, any Wednesday with Henry Fonda and Anne Bancroft. Mm, Wonder what that's about and uh, various musicals. And, you know, and Al Hirschfeld had to sit through everything on Broadway. So on the one hand, you go, that guy saw every great show, every great performance, Brando and every great Tennessee Williams play and every great uh, Rodgers and Hart and, uh, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. He saw all of them, Sondheim. You know, every Clifford Odets saw it all. But how many truly terrible Broadway shows, shows that closed that night, did he sit through? And interestingly, there's a new biography about Al Hirschfeld that's out that I read recently. And he said that he just had a code where he would not leave the theater. He would go to these shows oftentimes with other couples and on many occasions they would go okay uh, we're we're leaving after intermission this is just a stink burger and he would say okay 
see you later. And he would sit through the end of every single production. So, uh, so he became my idol. I began trying to draw like Hirschfeld. And I actually got very good at it, if I may say so myself, except I'm you know, completely ripping off this guy's style. In high school, I joined the school paper as their cartoonist. And um, that didn't work out too well because I said to the faculty advisor, well, can I also do some writing? I'd like to do a humor column or maybe a sports column. And, and he said, no, you're the cartoonist. Just do cartoons. And I said, yeah, but I, I also want to write. I'm also interested in writing. Just do the cartoons. So I quit. And that was the end of my journalism career. Um, I then went to this local Woodland Hills. I grew up in Woodland Hills in the San Fernando Valley. You read my book, The Me Generation by Me, growing up in the 60s. A little plug for that. Uh, You will learn all about it. But there was a local newspaper, and their paper came out like once a month, I think. And I approached the editor about doing a comic strip. And he said, okay. And so for several months, I had this comic strip, which was like four panels. And I don't remember much about it, but it was like teenagers and rock and roll. And um, and then after a few months, I was let go. There was, uh, you know, cost cutting going on at the paper. And my comic strip was a luxury. By the way, I was making $5 a month doing that comic strip. And at that time, I thought about making, uh, cartooning a career. And I thought, yeah, it would be great to have my own comic strip like Peanuts or Blondie or High and Lois in syndication, being seen in 400 newspapers around the country. Uh, Yeah, man, that that would be a good job. You know what held me back? I thought to myself, yeah, but that means I've got to come up with seven jokes a week. Seven jokes a week. Who can withstand that kind of pressure? And, of course, you flash forward to the career I did enter, comedy writing, where I had to come up with seven jokes in five minutes. Now we move forward to 1973, and I'm in New York City on vacation. And on a whim, I pick up the phone book, White Pages, and I look to see whether there's an Albert Hirschfeld listed. And lo and behold, there was. So I picked up the phone and I called the number. Gentleman answers. He said, uh, hi, are you the Al Hirschfeld who draws the caricatures in the New York Times? And he said, yes. And I introduced myself and I said I was like a real big fan and... Uh, I just want you to know that, and uh, at some point I, I would love to meet you. 
He said, well, come on over. So he did all of his drawings. He had a, a studio in um, a brownstone in New York. He said, come on over. I'm like, okay, great. What's the address? And he wrote the address. And I said, how do I get there? <laughs> he said, where are you? And I told him, he said, okay, you take the detain to this and you get off here and you go a block and you go around the corner and da, da, da. 45 minutes later, I'm knocking on his door and there he is. And he invites me upstairs to his studio where we spent the afternoon talking, drawing, talking how you do hair and how you do hands. And I was watching him work on a, on a drawing and it was like truly amazing. And he used to have like a, a very distinctive signature with his name and he would draw like a little caricature of himself. And he made one of those just for me, which is really cool. And needless to say, is a prized possession. So I got a chance to meet the great Al Hirschfeld. Another thing I always wanted to do was get a cartoon in the New Yorker. I mean, the New Yorker was always the gold standard. So now it's 1977 and I decide, I want to try to do this. I contact the New Yorker and I say, how do you submit cartoons? And they said at the time, you do 10 pencil sketches, 10 different drawings, and you send them to this address and you send them to Lee Lorenz, who is the cartoon editor. Okay, so I did, and I drew my 10 cartoons, and I packed them up and sent them off. Three weeks later, I get the standard rejection letter from the New Yorker, which I thought was just kind of cool anyway, and got a rejection letter with the New Yorker um, masthead on it. Very cool. But at the bottom, handwritten, I saw, call me with a phone number, Lee. So, wow, okay, the cartoon editor wants me to call him. So I did. I called him up immediately, and he said, uh, yeah, I really liked your cartoons. I thought they were very funny and very well drawn. Uh, I didn't buy them, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to send me 10 cartoons a week, for a year. At the end of a year, I will start buying them and I'll even go back and buy some of the cartoons that I had rejected. But I want to make sure that this isn't just a lark, that you are a cartoonist who is prolific, that you are somebody who is really dedicated to this, that it's not just a lark. And I said, well, um, it kind of is. I said, I uh, work full time, like 10 to 14 hours a day. And I really don't have the time to come up with 10 drawings a week. 
And he said, well, what do you do? And I said, I'm one of the head writers of MASH. <laughs> and he laughed and he said, okay, well, that's why the jokes are so good. <laughs> so anyway, I thanked him very much, hung up the phone, and that was the end of my 1977 attempt to get into The New Yorker. At that point, I really stopped drawing. I got involved in shows like MASH and Cheers, and these shows are more than full-time responsibilities. And I just stopped drawing and kind of moved on to other things. Decades went by, and I had not drawn. And about six months ago, I decided, you know what, grab, grab your lance and take another shot at that windmill. I thought, yeah, I want to give the New Yorker another try. And I had a friend named Julia Suits, who was a contributing cartoonist. She's been drawing for them for like 16 years. It's really great. She's very funny, great cartoonist. Anyway, uh, she offered to take a look at some of my stuff when I told her the story of how I once submitted to the New Yorker. And she saw my stuff, which, again, is uh, 40 years old, and said, eh, you're really talented. Uh, you could do this if, if you want. And so I thought, okay, great. I mean, I know how to draw, number one, and I'm funny, number two. How hard can this be? Oi. It turns out I couldn't draw. <laughs> it turns out that it's not like riding a bicycle. You don't just pick it up and draw the way you did 40 years ago. It was like I was in the second grade again. Uh, those muscles had long since atrophied. So it took me months of just drawing day after day, trying to do cartoons. And uh, Julia, God bless her, would look at my stuff from time to time and go, um, redo this. Uh, The perspective is wrong. Uh, His head's too big. Uh, the focus is wrong, that kind of thing. And and I would be like just redrawing these things over and over. At this point, certainly I'm not submitting to the New Yorker because I sucked. And uh, I found it wasn't all that easy to come up with the gags either because it's a very finite uh, quality that you need for these gags. I mean, you have to have a very brief caption that has to go with a very clear and hopefully well-drawn drawing. And the reader has to connect the two within like one or two seconds and get the joke. Uh, it's, it's a different skill set than what I'm used to. I mean, I'm used to characters and and I'm used to jokes coming off of of attitudes based on knowing who these characters are. And I'm used to setting up jokes with punchlines. Well, you can't 
have any setup line. It has to be just one statement, and it has to go with the picture. And it has to be sophisticated and droll and worthy of the New Yorker. You can't just do any kind of gags. So uh, for months, I was just drawing, just missing on the drawings, missing on the gags, uh, (laughs) you know, just flailing with this. But I kept at it, just drawing every day, and eventually my drawings got better. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, in, in one case, I had drawn something very carefully. And in the background, it's like, oh, I got to have something going on here. So I'll just draw a couple of people walking by. And I just drew them in like five seconds. And uh, Julie looked at the drawing and she said, well, the people in the foreground, uh, there's this and that. And just, but those other people in the background look great. <laughs> Do that. <laughs> Do that. Move your style more in, in that direction. So I was playing with my style and uh, playing with the form and, uh, you know, what pens to use, what shading to use. And, I, you know, it was truly a learning process that after about three to four months, I finally felt that I was good enough to at least submit. Now, submitting to the New Yorker is a humbling experience because you, well, you do it by email now. You don't have to actually send in your stuff uh, through the mail. But you have to send in a multiple of like eight, nine, ten drawings a week and you're up against their heavy hitter regulars who've been doing this for years and years and years. And they only take about 17 to 20 a week, you know, and they're probably getting close to a thousand cartoons. And uh, a lot of them are, like I said, by their heavy hitters. So it's like uh, you're going to try to submit a play for submission and uh, you're up against Neil Simon and Paul Rudnick and uh, Tennessee Williams and you. <laughs> and you're trying to, to squeeze past those guys. It's very difficult. And even those guys get rejected. You know, they're in competition with each other. And even those guys who have sold uh, a million cartoons one week, nope, sorry, um, but I started submitting week after week, and here is the final point that uh, that I want to make about this and sort of the conclusion of this episode. I sold one. Now, this is not a surprise to anyone who follows me on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or my blog because it ran in the January 3rd edition. And so I posted a picture of the cartoon in all of those places. But I want to tell you, when I got that email, that original email was like, oh, my God, I was completely shocked. Like I said, I fully expected that I would have to do this for like a year until I was finally taken seriously. But 
uh, <laughs> they liked one and and actually bought it. Um, so it paid off. It paid off a lot quicker than I thought it would. But talk about the culmination of a lifelong dream. Now, they didn't just hand it to me, of course. Like I said, I spent lots and lots of hours uh, just drawing and redrawing and redrawing and coming up with ideas and Julia going, no, that sucks, and throwing things away and, you know, working at it. And, uh, and it paid off. It paid off. Like I said, it is in the January 3rd edition of The New Yorker. You can probably see it or you can go online or you can go to my Instagram or Twitter, wherever. You can find it. It's it's actually pretty easy to find. And I'm continuing to send them stuff and, you know, getting rejected. Um, but it's what I expect. Um, and again, hopefully uh, along the way I'll sell a a couple of more. But um, I want to thank some people uh, publicly. Uh, First of all, Lee Lorenz for being the first person to encourage me and say that I had some potential. Also to Emma Allen and to Colin Stokes of The New Yorker for accepting it. And finally, most important to Julia Suits, who is like my mentor, my muse. None of this could have happened without you, Julia. So um, my undying, heartfelt thanks. So that is the uh, that's the the story. Except for one, uh, well, actually, a couple of final notes. Number one, to put this in some perspective. They also have a humor column called Shouts and Murmurs, The New Yorker. And I have sent a couple of comic essays to them, thinking oh, it would be really cool to get into Shouts and Murmurs. It's Woody Allen and Steve Martin, Paul Rudnick, um, Calvin Trilling, a lot of these you know, great uh, humorists have gotten into the New Yorker. Like, wow, that would really be fun. So I've sent in a few things and I've been rejected every time. And I figure, well, if I really devoted myself to that and if I just kept sending in essay after essay, I figure uh, at some point um, they're going to accept one of my articles. But... It just seems that it's a tougher challenge to do the cartoons. It's like I've been writing comic essays my whole life. I've been doing this blog for 16 years, but the cartoons are new. And I read a great article in the paper saying that to really keep your brain active, do new things. It opens up new synapses. And they said, even to the extent of brushing your teeth with your other hand or when you put on a jacket, put the other sleeve on first. Just anything to shake up your brain's routine. And so it's very exciting for me to be learning essentially a new skill and using different muscles 
so it's a it's a greater challenge. It's it's kind of more fun, and maybe someday again I'll take a run at uh, at shouts and murmurs. But for now, my sole focus is on uh, the cartoons at the New Yorker. And now my final point, which is this. I was sitting at my desk and I was drawing my cartoon and I thought back to the time I was 11 years old drawing comic books that nobody would ever see, listening to KFWB and the top 40 hits of the day. Now I'm sitting here and I'm drawing cartoons that 99% of the people (laughs) of the world are never going to see and I'm listening to Sirius XM 60s Gold. And they're playing the exact same songs that I was listening to when I was 11 listening to KFWB. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. It's like I am the same person doing the same thing I did many decades ago. I have come full circle. And that is this week's edition of Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks as always to Adam and Susie Meister Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, and Bruce and Jason Miller. Want to get in touch? HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com is my email address. And uh, beyond that, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week right here on Hollywood and Levine.